Hi guys, welcome to Bloomerang Podcast. My name is Agle and I'm very excited to introduce you today to Tosuna Shinova, who is a Nigeria-based uh, designer and architect, and her work Freedom to Move is included in the Style Cuts Volume 2. So we will be chatting about her inspirations, about her career, and uh, all the other interesting things related to design. So let's dive in. Hi Thorsten, I'm very excited to have you with us. Would you mind introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners? So my name is Tosi. I um, I guess I would consider myself first an architect, uh, before a product designer, maybe because that's how I have come to find myself in this space and it's really been instrumental in my growth, my growth story. So I have a practice in Lagos called CM Design Atelier and we do a lot of very interesting medium medium scale projects. Um, we have a very strong kind of aesthetic on Afro-minimalism. Um, materiality plays a lot in, in my work as an architect and also in my work as a product designer. I also have a furniture company called Ile Ila, which means house of lines in my native language, Yoruba. And it really was, I guess, is, is my exploration of a very kind of modern chair, but, but with some very African idiosyncrasies, particularly the materiality, the, the color, you know, the, the woods that I used. And it's really been an opportunity for me to fuse my understanding of my local culture and my very modern upbringing, which was to go to university in the UK and also practicing in Europe. Um, yeah, and I guess that's, that's it. So I'm an architect, I'm a product designer, and um, I'm very interested in creating elements of culture. What's the secret to navigating the male-dominated world of architecture? I think, you know, whether it's the furniture company or practicing as an architect, it, it is tough, you know. Um, but, you know, people do say you're not thrown what you can't handle as well. And and it never comes in, it, it doesn't come in a concentrated dose, you know. It's little bits, you know, and you, you learn as you go along. Um, practicing as an architect, um, going to a building site and having to give instructions can be quite challenging. But... I've realized that it's gotten easier because ultimately um, competence shines over gender. At the end of the day, you know, the longer you're in the game, the more experienced you are, the more people respect the value you bring, the easier it is to move. The most difficult bit is the beginning. So I've gotten to a stage now in practice, whether it's with my furniture, with my architecture practice, I don't even need to sell myself when I get into a room because they know who I am before I get there. I know that's not the case for everyone, but it was an uphill struggle. It was a constant at the, at the very beginning, um, always trying to ensure I put the work forward. You know, being a woman and being a young woman are two minuses <laughs> in this environment, especially in architecture, because it's a profession of apprenticeship and experience. So, they're more likely to trust an older person and an older man than a younger woman. Um, and always ensuring that I try to ensure that as much as possible, if I can show merit, 
to shield the <laughs> inadequacies, if you could call them that, in, in this context, um, that that was helpful. You have to be good. You cannot afford to not be good. So, I mean, it's, it's my reality. We, we just get on with it. We just get on with it. I mean, there are days when you get a bit of a knock and you think, oh gosh, that would really not have happened if I wasn't a woman. But I mean, there's nobody who doesn't have something that's not perfect in their existence. And I think something that I, I learned very early on is to almost have a dose of youthful ignorance. Because if you know too much, you won't do it. If you know that, oh, I'm not going to get the opportunity because I'm a woman and then I give myself a complex before I'm even at the table, then I might just say, oh, I won't even bother going for the interview. No, I'd rather happily go completely ignorant. I'm going to do my best and I will get this job just because it's me. And if I don't get it, okay, it's a knock, but, you know, it's helped me. Tell us about your work, Freedom to Move, that's included in Style Cuts Volume 2 under the Future is Now theme. First of all, of course, we're very excited to have had this opportunity to include the work, and I hope that those who've purchased the box will also enjoy uh, discovering it. So, would love to hear more about it. It's a project I hold so close to my heart. I, I so enjoyed it. I think the experience reminded me of youth. You know, being able to take a bubble project that it doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want, there are no constraints. And that feeling of being in design school, it was so refreshing. Freedom to Move presents a collection of headpieces that explore the idea of protection and celebration inspired by the changes COVID-19 brought worldwide in 2020. It came about where um, I got contacted uh, about a potential project that Lexus International were going to sponsor for Design Miami. And the theme was to produce an object of our times. That was it. And um, it was a bid between myself and Chris, and who I invited to join me on the project, because I realized that this opportunity was potentially quite huge. And especially since there haven't been that many African designers who've been elevated to that kind of status, why not share this opportunity? Chris Amois is an acclaimed Ghanaian textiles and furniture designer based in London. It's, 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 it's a win-win for everyone involved. And then I also felt as well, it would be important to be able to, you know, for the process of design to have input, you know, two creatives of two different backgrounds working together on a project that is a conceptual project. It can only, it can only be a complete plus. On January 30, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 to be a public health emergency of international concern. But obviously there were still restrictions, you know, so we were very conscious of what we were experiencing. What was particularly challenging in Lagos was when we had the lockdown, is the reality of a lockdown. There's so many people here who live on less than a dollar a day. They live hand to mouth. You're telling them not to go out. How are they going to eat? We don't have a social um, security system that can provide. So it was very, one, it was very difficult to enforce it here. But it really brought home the reality that uh, the solutions or the mandates that were being put, imposed in the West 
can't really work in this kind of context. And it was with that we started to think about this idea of, okay, objects of our time. Clearly, the biggest thing that came up since COVID was the mask, but we didn't want to do an obvious mask. And then we started thinking about, okay, Krista is from Ghana. I'm from Nigeria. We're both West African. Um, how can we create something that is, is about also the continent, you know, the cultural identity, but something that will be global and intent for everyone? And then we started to think about this idea of the African mask which is quite synonymous across West Africa in particular. And then we started to think about the importance of the human head and the mask. The idea that the human head is a point of celebration. You know, in our cultures, we wear these very flamboyant headdresses at parties, you know, a king with a crown. We also thought about the importance of the head in relation to times of war and protection and the helmet. And then starting to tie it in with this idea of the human collective war we were fighting against COVID, you know, and how we could create something that could not only be some kind of protection, but some kind of celebration of humanity. And so that was when we started thinking, okay, we're going to do some kind of masks. And we we, we initially started with a, um, five different um, styles. And then because of time constraints, we ended up with three. But it was really an opportunity to kind of explore this idea of identity, you know, this cohesion, this idea of protecting of the head, celebrating of the head, creating something that would allow people to move around freely, even though we have the constraints that we can't touch each other, you know. And, and, and that was how it really came about. Um, and it was a really exciting prospect. So we, we, we decided, at least conceptually, that it would be a mask. And then we decided to explore how can we now tie this in with elements of our culture that really show, you know, and bring this idea of identity out. Because there's so many typologies now of masks, you know. And a lot of people did interesting headpieces. But it was very important to us to be able to honor our cultures. I, I think that, that was really important for us. Um, because like I said, this was an amazing opportunity and we wanted to make sure that when we, when we were done, people would notice. <laughs> the design journey from sketch to final production took place during the numerous lockdowns and restrictions that happened in 2020. What was your biggest challenge you two faced with this project? But you know, we had the major challenge of how to actually get these all done. We had from September when we were told, um, Krista came to Lagos in October, and then we had a lot of the political, up, the, the social unrest with the NSARS movement in Lagos, which is not far from my house. And then we had another lockdown and Krista got stuck here, <laughs> you know, so, and it was all within this period that we, we, were, we were brainstorming and thinking about what we would produce. And then also the reality that all the people we worked with, most of them we never met which I thought was really fascinating. And and it was it was really a labor of love. So how did culture influence freedom to move? It was it was it was it was a really it was a beautiful project because it was it was also about community. There were so many people involved, you know, and everyone did it with so much joy and happiness. I don't think any of them could appreciate the exposure that the project would have gotten. But I think I think our title was to suggest that the masks would allow you the freedom to move because COVID had been the constraint. If there was no vaccine found 
and we had to walk around with masks, wouldn't it be best for them to be a celebration of our reality? I think that was how how we thought about it. You know, if we're going to have to wear masks, let, let's make them elaborate. What does the design scenery look like in Lagos? So Lagos is really at a very... Um, I would say Nigeria in general is at a very in, where it's a very interesting time um, creatively. There's a lot happening within the creative space: design, fashion, music, film. You know, I don't know whether we just happen to be a generation who, now that we have come of ourselves, are beginning to show the the seeds that were always brewing. It's it's a very generational thing, and it's it, it's very interesting. People within this age gap of, I guess. 10 to 20 years um there's a lot happening there's there's a very big interest locally there's a beginning to be a big interest internationally the quality of the work is also very diverse you can't say um you can't say the work that is coming out and i'm saying this as a community now you can't say the work that is the strong work that is coming out of nigeria and lagos in particular you can't say oh this is their aesthetic or their language it's all still very individual. You know, I can't say, oh, like, this is Scandinavian 1960s design. It, it doesn't exist here. And I think it's because people are still quite experimental with the materials that they're using. Maybe also because we don't have, we don't have the freedom of having so much choice. Um, people have really pushed the boundaries of what they can produce with the materials that they find. And I think also because we don't have advanced, um, we don't have advanced infrastructure in terms of manufacturing, people still deal directly with artisans to get things done. So in the case with my chairs, I literally sit with my carpenter and I'll design something and he will tell me, oh, this can work, that can't work because he can't do this joint. He doesn't have very complicated machinery, but within those confinements, we're able to come up with things quite flexible. And it's literally because we sit together in his workshop. There's a, there's a very good relationship with a one-on-one when it comes to design here. Whereas if I was designing in Europe, if I didn't have the, the skills or the connection to a, a, big, or a, a, a big manufacturer, I, a lot of this will stay in my head. You know, the cost even to do a prototype will be so expensive. Here, it's not. So that flexibility, even though it, it affects us because when it comes to mass production, we struggle. But to be innovative and to be able to create things and push the design, it's easier in this context, as long as you're working with the materials that are available to you here. You mentioned that you aspire to create the design resonates with culture. Could you expand on this a little bit and share why is this important to you? I think I'm going to just speak specifically to fashion, maybe because fashion is a much easier kind of genre to, to push internationally. Fashion has done very well here. There's a lot that's happening in the realm of um, batik, batik. You know, we call it adira, which is like the the dye. You know, the dyeing pattern on fabrics. And in the last two years, a lot of people have been doing very interesting things. That, again, like I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, it's about being able to elevate your culture to a modern international standard where anybody feels wow i can wear this and there are two brands that i think are doing extremely well um there is unquo nkwo 
and there's one called the Dye Lab, um, D Y E Lab, and also there's a lady called Makio who has had a, a design line for a long time, and she actually was the first person who started this idea of using the the dyeing to for the fabric and actually being able to produce it locally. Because again, when you think about the fact we don't have we don't have local industrial kind of fabric generation. But the dye fabric is stuff that on a small scale can be controlled and gives you the flexibility to really be creative. And it's very exciting to see what's happening in that space. I think these I think that's something that I think people will start to notice and want to buy more. Now, of course, it depends on obviously the time of year. These would be clothes that could only really be worn in the summertime, you know, particularly in uh, in Europe. But you know, um, I I I don't see how these would not be brands that some of the bigger department stores with time would want to stock. So thank you so much, Dawson, for being with us. Um, I hope that those who listened to this talk enjoyed it. Um, you can find out more about Tossin's work, uh, of course, on her website and on our latest blog post. So check it out on caroline.com blog. Till the next time.